Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. We have a, a truly eclectic personality today, Mr. Blake Freeman. Blake is an actor, director, filmmaker, environmental activist. After speaking to him for a number of minutes, I have the impression that he could very well be the lead protagonist in mankind's history. He's done a little bit of everything. Welcome to Seldom Said, Blake. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure is ours, I can assure you. I wonder if we can start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place. Well, I'm uh, originally from the southeast United States. Um, most of my life, I've lived in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, about 10, 11 years ago, I decided uh, I wanted to make a life-changing uh, move um, and kind of throw caution to the wind. And I, I basically said to myself, is anybody really keeping score in life? And is uh, anybody going to point at me if I've ever fell at trying something new and outrageous? And uh, to me, the life that I was living, which basically I felt was kind of in a box for, for a guy like me, um, I decided to reach and become an actor and a director in Hollywood, something I knew absolutely nothing about. Some people will probably say, I still know nothing about it. But <laughs> but I did it. Um, it worked. And uh, a few TV shows later, four movies, uh, and now the Hybo franchise book series. And, you know, I'm, I'm here. Whether they like it or not, I'm staying. So uh, I, it's, it's been one heck of a ride. But, uh, I, 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 you know, it's, I, I never really thought about, you know, taking a chance at something like that, especially something you don't know anything about other than what you see, but uh, somehow I think my daydreaming uh, my entire life paid off because I was able to put that down on paper and, and make something interesting. Do you have an emotional fulcrum in your background, a teacher, a parent, a friend, who made you so fairly equitable in achieving and attempting risk to really just pick up stakes and go off to Hollywood to make a movie? It doesn't seem to the ordinary thing that a person would think of. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I liken it probably to the other side of that equation, which is we moved a lot, so there wasn't a lot of, uh, I wasn't, you know, I guess we didn't have the kind of grounded nature that uh, most people have where you grow up and you're like, well, I've, i got to get a job and i got to settle down. Settling down is something that uh, I didn't know very much about, you know. My, even when we lived in the same city for longer in maybe a year or two, we uh, we moved a bunch of times. I thought my parents was running from the government or something, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, yeah, which may have been the case. I'm not saying it wasn't. Um, no, it's uh, my mother. I mean, she would, she would, we would move, you know, three, four times in a year. I spent maybe one Christmas in the same in the same house my first 17 years. You know, more than one, maybe two in one house, and you know, we just moved a lot. So I think that helped me go, okay, you know what, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to try something different and, uh, and did what I did. So, I, I, you know, I think it was, it was less, hey, I saw somebody else do it, than I wasn't comfortable in the first place kind of just sitting around. Interesting justification. Would you be able to identify or paint a picture of that epiphanal moment when you said, tomorrow I'm gone? 
Yeah, you know, I had a I had an event happen to me that uh, you know I thought I was settled down. I thought uh, you know I was in a relationship, and uh, I found out it wasn't as honest as it was supposed to be on the other side. And you know, it was kind of one of those hard hitting moments. And uh, I was out on a golf course, and I looked around, and every one of my friends were about you know, 25 years older than me, and I said, I don't know if I want to die on this golf course. I, I just feel like there's got to be gotta be something else out there, you know, and just, I, and I, I just, I, it was that, there was a defining moment. It was it was that day I actually didn't even finish the round. I, uh, I went home and uh, called the only guy I know who knew how to work a camera, and it was 2007, and we had created a, a television series, as we thought, and created a pilot and we ended up selling it um, first to MTV but it ended up going to True TV uh, and it was just it was unreal because we didn't know what we were doing we knew how to make good things and things that people wanted to see we were commercially viable uh, in our ideas but you know we had a lot it was, the learning curve was self-taught Carl Sandburg had uh, a marvelous quote uh, whereby he said that most creativity is conjectural do you feel that at core basis of what you've done, there simply is the desire to find an elemental truth in another person, another event, another scene? Yeah, I, I, I think mimicking life um, seems to somehow be more successful, you know. And when you when you when you try to do that, I I, I try to create more grounded. Um, in reality comedy, you know, most of my stuff is comedy. Um, it's normally, whether people like it or not, it's normally how people actually really talk, um, you know, some of those things. And most of the things that, that are out that win awards, movies, what have you, indie films, are usually about a guy who breaks up with his girl and he walks around a building in the rain to an alternative song for about two hours. That gets an award these days um you know it's, it's just as sad as you can make it people just in you know the critics love it uh, i i on the other hand yeah i think i think trying to find something that people can relate to um you know with mine it was you know comedy and so i try to find a you know just the, the characters maybe that they can relate to and everybody goes oh that reminds me of my friends and i hear that a lot when i'm out i think those are the things people like to see it makes them feel comfortable uh, when they're watching something, and then they tend to watch those over and over again. Um, you know, I think I do that as well. But, uh, but I, yes, I, I think there's some truth into trying to find a way to connect to people. Um, but again, you know, this was a science that was that we were learning ourselves as we went. You know, we, I, I didn't attend any classes or any school to make movies. Um, to write scripts, uh, which I wrote all of them, or to even write the book that's out now. I, you know, I, I just didn't know. I only knew how I wanted it to come out. So I've not even taken one course before. So if it was bad, I thought I was going to hear about it. <laughs> I probably would have. <laughs> it seems to be two th schools of thought in regard to comedy. Uh, Milton Berle, the late comedian, said that comedy was an instant vacation. And then on the opposite side of the coin... You have individuals saying that comedy is one of the most difficult things in the world to put on film. How do you find humor yourself? How do you decide what to project on the screen? You know, I, I, I mine is situational comedy. I put people in situations 
um, that they hopefully can relate to. Like I was saying earlier, I think it's, uh, oh, wow, I hate it when that happens, or, you know, just anything. For example, let's say you go to a restaurant and you, you order a chicken salad, and they bring you chicken strips that are uncut, and it's on top of grass. Have, have you ever tried to cut chicken on top of grass? It's not the easiest thing to do. <laughs> Why don't they just cut it in the back? But these are, like, these little things that people have to deal with on a daily basis and then they gripe about well when you put those in film and it's something they can relate to it gives them some comfort you know some sort of you know laughing whatever it might be and i just use that as an example because it just happened the other day but these these little things i think make comedy in today's world uh better now i'm a huge mel brooks fan but Mel Brooks type humor doesn't work anymore and i think it's because you know reality tv came into the world and now that it's reality, things have to become just a little more real. If you've noticed, like Airplane and you know some of the great comedies of the 70s and 80s won't work today because that slapstick just isn't. It doesn't have the same punch. I think reality has ruined us just a tad bit, um, and that reality now is expected that these things have to happen organically and in you know in a realism kind of way. Uh, I think we've lost the ability to have a joke and then a punchline. I just don't think those are going to work anymore. It would seem that you're arguing for a satirical aspect to comedy. Do you consider yourself a satirist? Uh, probably. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> if that's what you're asking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... I Yes, it's, I don't, I don't think, I think we're, like, again, I think we're just past the days of being able to set somebody up on a joke and have it ride, 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 and then deliver a punchline and have the big laugh and payoff. Those, those just don't work anymore. Uh, you know, also, um, our attention spans, by the way, um, you know, are now measured in nanoseconds, so I'm not quite sure <laughs> that, uh, that anything in the old way of comedy works. I, and, you know, all we know of the way that, that, that we do it now, the, the situational, I wish, I wish, um, I just wish that Mel Brooks and them were still going, they were still doing their thing. But again, I just don't know if those things would work today. It's an interesting premise. Do you feel that we've lost, if indeed we need one, the moral line between what is funny and what is simply embarrassing? Yeah, I, well, yes. Um, unfortunately, and we, we do bow to this, by the way, we've done it, you know, we do it ourselves, and the shock value has to, has to, uh, has to sell. I, you know, I have it in, in my movies where it's very shocking. Oh, I can't believe that happened, but people are laughing. Um, I think we've lost the ability to laugh at the, the, the typical, how, how would you say? I, I mean, if, in a movie, I think we've lost the ability to have just the everyday jokes go by, and because you're asking someone to leave their home, buy a ticket, go out, buy you know buy dinner for their date, and then go to the film, and you're looking at a hundred fifty dollar night sometimes, especially in you know New York and L.A. You, those things work on sitcoms; they work in small bits at twenty two minutes plus commercial time. Um, those things work. I don't think they would work in, in long feature films. So yes, I think we've lost the ability to 
we, we the shock value, the the darker humor, the, some of these things that you just don't see. You you have to constantly move or try to shake the audience. Um, and I think it's been making some bad films, by the way. Uh, but you know, comedy is at a crossroads right now. It's a tough one. You know, they mix comedy now with some seriousness. You know, Judd Apatow does that a lot with with movies like This Is Forty, and you know, so you're 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 depressed, and then you laugh, and then you get depressed again, and then you laugh. <laughs> so it's really it's it's a depressing, funny thing, by the way. <laughs> We're going to be speaking about your interest in naturalization and animals and so forth, wildlife. One wonders when you speak of documenting films that deal with commonplace humor, whether in a sense the conversation is not as important as the visualization. One wonders about the silent films, Chaplin being able to look one way and then the other and emote a laugh. Do you feel that the picture as a filmmaker, is as important or more important, in fact, than the dialogue? Um, I think it was. I think, you know, I think we've, we've lost that. I, I, it's, you know, you, you've got movies like Deadpool, which are doing really, really well, which are completely driven on the dialogue, and the dialogue because it's written as if you know you're watching a movie written by guys who are making fun of the superhero genres at the same time making you love the superhero genres. They've done really, really well. Um, so whatever's on the screen means less because you're, you're constantly laughing at the dialogue. I, I think beautiful movies, big, the older beautiful movies, The Gone with the Winds, uh, you know, some of the other ones, they're, they're, tougher, they're tougher sales now. You know, our, our A-list celebrities are, are much different than they would have been. You know, they used to be the, the Oscar winners, the best actors, and now, you know, it's mostly action heroes, um, which are, I, I you know, I, I don't know. I, I It's hard for me to kind of explain my thought process on that is I think that we're past the point of the slow, beautiful, and, you know, visual kind of movies, I think everything has to seem, or, or maybe we're just in that rut, that everything is big explosions, fast-moving everything, and, you know, I don't know if you saw the last few Transformer movies, but they're just like one giant music video, and it's, it's a lot of light flashes and, um, you know, probably causing a lot of uh, seizures with all the flashing that goes, goes on, but it's it's nothing. Yeah, it's nothing that 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 resembles a, a film that uh, of, of of any path. That's for sure. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's. Uh, I was trying to figure it out in your question. I, you know, I I don't I don't know if we'll ever get back to that. And who knows where the film world is going? I mean, we're starting to do content now, which is called snackable content um, in one and a half to three minutes. Um, whoever knew that anybody would like to do that. I mean, we had a whole app where everybody did seven-second stuff called Vine, and millions of people were doing it. So it's unreal. Everybody's a star now, though. Your phone makes you a star. So It sounds like a seven-minute date. <laughs> too quick a beginning and too slow an end. Richard Dreyfus was once asked, in fact, dealing with that issue you've just raised and the aspect of a so-called golden age in actors 
he said that he wanted to be a star, and he became a star. And in doing so, he forgot how to be an actor. Do you feel we have too many stars and too few actors? Yeah, for sure. But it's hard for me to discuss that because I am not a great actor, but I play Blake very well. Um, so I am, I am, I am, as Blake, I think I'm a, I'm a, I'm a funny talent that people like to see, or at least so far it's worked, but I'm a, I'd probably be a terrible actor. Um, so it's tough for me to say that, but you know, you're, you're right. We, we do have so many stars, but you know, as I just said, everybody's kind of their own star. Now there's some cool factor to that. I love it. It's, I think there is a, an ability to raise some self-esteem, some confidence. I think it, it pushes people out there. I think it's great that people are staking their own claim. Um, I also feel, though, that it also hurts a lot of people because they try it, and they may not just have that, that personality that works, that relates to everybody, because not everybody's the same. You know, you, you got to find your right niche and so you know, there's probably a lot of people who are depressed or, or what have you. But you know, there's a lot of things streaming with video games. You know, people aren't really watching them play video games. I think the whole media in the world is missing that. They're watching the personality that's playing that video game and what they're talking and they're enjoying that. Um, it's amazing that these stars are right in front of you for free now on YouTube. And, you know, the world is, is, is changing. No one really knows where or how this is going to wrap up, and I don't think it ever will. But right now we're in a transition from old film and TV, and the last ones to the party will be the ones out the door, that's for sure. You know, much like the music business. Let's hold that thought. That's a marvelous segue into our first station break. We'll be back in a moment. Program is seldom said. My name is Robert. Be back. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Special guest, uh, a truly 21st century Renaissance man, Blake Freeman, who has done a great many things and continues to do so, a creative individual, to say the least. Blake, uh, we mentioned all of the things you've done so far in regard to film and comedy, and yet one of the focus points in your life uh, is wildlife and nature and things that are uninhibited and free. Why wildlife as a primary concentration? Um, did you, I'm sorry, did you say why is it? Why that choice? So many colors on oh, your palette. Yeah, sorry. sorry about that. Um, so I, I attended a few galas um, on, on wildlife and, and on, you know, conservation groups. Uh, the first two I went to it was, it was, um, they were fun. It was interesting. A lot of people taking pictures, a lot of rich people in the room, um, and then people on stage and, you know, they're laughing and trying to entertain and getting people to write checks towards, you know, these wildlife, uh, issues. And it, it, it wasn't moving by any means. It was a show. And I didn't really think much of it. And you the uh, Wild Aid Gala, and Wild Aid is a conservation group who stops the buying of illegal goods, meaning ivory and, and rhino horn. And, I mean, they, they, they work hard on the front lines to get these things banned in, in multiple countries. And then I saw a different kind of gala. I saw a different kind of group, a group that really took this stuff to heart. And they showed 
some video of what's really happening um, to these animals. And, and you know, the, the, I, I never, I, I am the masses. I, I you know, I, I know that, you know, we probably shouldn't kill elephants. This is how I thought, um, you know, or rhinos. But I never knew that they were being decimated. I never knew to the point of what they were. And, you know, you always hear, well, there's global warming, but now there's not global warming. All of these things always have a, a, a to and a fro, in a sense, right? Uh, both sides of the story. There are no both sides of the story in, in, in wildlife conservation and what's going on right now that uh, these animals are going through, the plight that's happening. Um, and there, if we don't do something about it, our ecosystem suffers. Uh, you know, the importance of elephants and what they're doing. But during, during this gala, I, I just, I, I watched a very compassionate group of people who really cared, and it, it was a little different than the other ones I attended. So I got very intrigued, um, and I, when I started to see the stats, it, it blew me away. Then I, I just, I thought about it. Are you raising money every year? and you're still fighting this problem, but you're starting over every year, and you're still looking for money. You're constantly asking and asking. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. That's how they operate. But what if there was a way that we could educate or inform future generations and get them thinking and excited? Because, you know, the Internet's been good and bad for us, but the one good thing it has done is the the younger generations are using it to educate themselves, and, and they're becoming a little more compassionate um, than we've been in the past, especially my generation, trust me. Um, and so I see some exciting things happening in, in that world. But I, I said, okay, maybe we can create a Disney-esque character or something that these children could relate to, and we could somehow inform them, inspire compassion, towards the animals, and we chose wildlife because of the importance of the ecosystem. And here in the States, when we talk about uh, domesticated animals, there are so many groups working for that. But in the wildlife sector, just because it's not here in America, it's usually in China, Africa, and you know, other countries, and we're not, it's not here on our doorstep, we don't pay attention enough, and we should be, uh, because it, does, it, it affects our planet. So... That's how I got inspired by it, and that's how I got into it, and the reason why I created Haibu, so that these children have something to relate to. Describe Haibu. You've mentioned the name. Describe its derivation, its background, where it came from, and in a sense, describe the character as the character is. Yep. So I, I created Haibu as, as a little girl from from the Arctic North, um, and, and she, she basically finds out that she has a, a unique gift to speak, to speak with animals, and it, it comes as a life-or-death situation uh, with a polar bear that she, she figures this out. His growl starts to turn to words, and, and so we wrote a book, um, the first book called High Blue Lost in New York, and her struggle with this polar bear dislodges some ice. She starts to float away, and eventually gets picked up as she's unconscious from dehydration, gets picked up by a barge on, this, on its way to New York. Uh, she ends up in New York, ends up in an orphanage because nobody really knows where she belongs. Um, and after meeting some kids in the orphanage and, and being taken to a circus, she decides to free these circus animals uh, from the abuse that, uh, that is going on there. And so it's a big adventure story. And, you know, she, 
uh, much like you would see in a big in a, in a Pixar or a Disney uh, movie. That's what we wanted to give to uh, to the kids. And so New York, just recently, as you know, just banned all animals in circuses, um, which is huge, uh, a huge step for them. And that's kind of what we wanted this character to be able to do is open people's eyes to the atrocities that are going on with wild animals that pertain to wild animals. Um, Haibu herself is a 10-year-old girl who basically is not a Disney character. She's not waiting on a prince to come and kiss her and, you know, take her off on a white horse. She's, she's pretty resilient, knows who she is, and knows that she wants to save animals, and she's, uh, she doesn't need anybody else to do that. She, she's very focused on, on helping saving, uh, you know, wild animals from, you know, the toys of persecution, the, the caged uh, world, anything that, uh, that they're going through it. So she's, uh, she's kind of leading the rebellion against that. Now, the story does not stand for whether you eat meat or not. You know, wild animals eat meat. Um, she, uh, she also, it, 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 it's not whether you hunt or not legally. Haibu doesn't have anything to do with that. It's about the, the wild animals forced into captivity and, you know, the being slaughtered for these goods and services and things like that. That's what Haibu is. It's, it's fighting for. You mentioned the growl of a bear turning into conversation. Do you, as Disney does, try to invest wild animals with human characteristics and traits? Yeah, this I, I tried to ground it in reality as much as I could so that, you know, these growls were not words and then they became words to her. Um, I think, yes, I think Disney has, they, they just become humans. Um, I try to keep the animals animals, and you have, you get it from the animal perspective. Um, this is a, you know, the children's book has been great. We won the Mom's Choice Award for 2018. Um, but it, 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 it gets deep in there. You know, it talks to the, the, the lion from the circus, and, and Hybrid have a great conversation, which we hear about all the time. Uh, within, within the book, that people love that part of the book, uh, where they talk about why humans and, and animals have, have kind of separated and no longer can communicate like they used to. And it's, very, it's a very cool story, and, you know, it, it sets us up for a long life for Haibu and a lot of adventures. It would seem, and this is a point that we're in agreement of, that we often do not give our children credit for mature argument and understanding, Haibu is a character who is growing intellectually constantly and treats her problems in a very mature and creative way. Do you agree? I agree. So this is not, you know, this is not dumbed down book for kids by any means. You know, it's, it sparks debate. It sparks a little bit of... Uh, of, of interest in how they can help, uh, how they can assist. Haibu is, is very intelligent for 10 years old. She's, you know, she's lived and learned. You know, I, I got to tell you, just the kids that I meet today that are 10 years old, and then the kids from that when I was 10 years old, it's, it's night and day. The Internet has helped grow. I mean, I don't know. The kids grow up a lot faster than they used to, I can tell you that. Um, I, I'm sometimes intellectually behind all the 10-year-olds in the room if I'm in a group with them. So 
I can tell you they're a lot smarter than I am now. It's, it's unbelievable. But I think it's important that we give them a book that isn't outdated or too kiddish when we're really doing something as important as we are, or, you know, that Haibu's doing something as important as she is. Um, you know, it's not, hey, go get the red ball. It's, hey, how can we help these animals? So I think it's very important that Haibu and that standard and the brand stays in line with what she is and what she's trying to do, and we don't dumb it down. Do you feel that in the dark side of those communication advances, we're teaching young people to know things but not to think about them, and is that the kind of palliative or choice that you feel should be part of our modern educational system, youngsters able to find solutions rather than simply recite facts? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think I think the world is a big problem, and it's problem solving at its best. I, I think you, I think we're giving them the ideas that Haibu can do these things. Why can you know? Why can't I? Or how can I help? Um, I think sparking. The, the interest to know more, um, like you know, is this really happening? Is is you know, is this a thing? They get so wrapped up in the story, and we've been watching this when we were testing the book and hearing about it. They get so wrapped in the story, they want to know more about her. All they want to know is more and more and more. When you do that without teaching to them, because you don't want to get this, we don't want Haibu to become some sort of just constant barrage of. of You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You know, for animals, it has to happen organically in her life. You follow the story, but then make you want to find out more for yourself, and then figure out these kids are powerful. You know, they can they can teach the adults a thing or two, and that's you know, and you know that's for sure. Um, and they can make them think. And listen through the kids. If we go through the kids, then they find out. Look, we're doing some things wrong in the world um, for wildlife, and we can do better. I, you know, and I think that those conversations at the dinner table, those conversations as, as the adults are reading these stories to the kids, can spark enough interest that we can really make a difference, and that's what we're trying to do with Haibu. I must ask, and perhaps others in the listening audience have the same question, were you influenced in any way during your life as a writer-creator by Kipling, the Jungle Books, the animals speaking and relating? You know, I didn't have. I, I I loved I loved those I loved the books, by the way, and I you know I loved the stories. But I this wasn't this wasn't a lifelong dream to do. So I you know I wish it was. It'd be a better story. Um, but once I got into it, now I've 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 went back and looked at everything. You know, I I, I love. I love the fact that we're able to create a world where the animals have a voice, um, but they have to stay more in. I think you pointed out earlier about that Disney, you know, they just humanize too much the characters, the other animals, not trying to do that. I think we're trying to keep the, just give the animals a voice, but they're still an animal. And that's a tough thing to do. I mean, you're, you're, when you're writing and you're creating that world, you've got to stay true to your world that you're giving to the audience. Um, and that's what we're trying to do with that. Do you think Haibu and her adventures would be more applicable to a cartoon presentation, a Pixar, 
or do you feel it could be done with live action? Well, it it, it definitely can for live action. In fact, we we had a studio make an offer for live action um, in the beginning, but. In terms of business and a brand and recognition, we don't want to go live action first because we don't have the audience first, and you need the, you have to have the animation to capture the audience. So um, one day I can tell you it will be a live action film, but right now um, I'm almost finished with the script. We have uh, multiple offers on the table from studios for the feature film. Uh, it is animated uh, much like a Pixar film. And then that one uh, is being done as well as the television series, which is a little bit younger, around three to eight-year-olds. Um, and that series as well is in negotiations. In fact, I'm in New York next week for it. Um, these, are, these are things that are in the works right now and are happening. We have the one book out right now, and then we have another book, a picture book for the younger audience, and the same story coming out later this year, or next year, sorry. And multiple books in the series will come out every, you know, six to ten months. But um, yeah, it's uh, animated is, is is where we're going now. Live action will be on the docket. Have you, in considering books coming out in the future, then parlayed an outline of the entirety of Haibu's story, and you're just filling in the spots for each text? Um. So the, the the are you talking about the film? What, would it be based on just one or all? The stories that you've mentioned, uh, you talked about secondary books coming out. Have you outlined in your mind the entirety of our life story? Oh yeah, yeah, no, 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 not at all. You know, it's very funny when I start writing them. By the way, uh, I do have somewhat of an outline, but I have no idea what's going to happen. It all lives in my head. I'm not quite sure how any other writer does it because, as I told you, I. I, I haven't even had discussions with anybody else. I, it's, it's very funny. A lot of people get very intrigued, and they want to know how everybody else does it. I don't want to mess up what's going on in in my own head uh, until people tell me it's terrible. Um, until then, I'm going to keep it the way it is. But um, it's very funny because people are like, "Well, what happens to the circus elephant, or what? You know, what happens to the lion here?" And they want to know more, and I'm like, I can't tell you that because I really don't know yet. And it's because I haven't seen it in my mind yet. Um, I know where I would like to go with it, but things happen, and you know, as I'm writing, and even the dialogue is not something that is that I even know what's about to happen. So, same thing happens in the script. I still stay along the line with it. The, the you know the feature is based on the first book, um, and it's. It's very, very intriguing because I don't really know what happens from scene to scene either. So it's, it's been great so far, so I'm going to stay with it. That may sound crazy. Maybe you need to tell me that. You talk to a lot more often. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, given the world we see today, insanity is the proper way to approach the morning. <laughs> it's really interesting how you approach things and how you parlay them onto the written word. Where within 30 seconds of our second station break, it's usually indicative of a good program when it goes by so quickly, and this indeed is one. When we come back, I'd love to have you, uh, Blake, discuss your process. There are those who write books but cannot write scripts. There are those who can do uh, the direct opposite, 
Writing conversation seems incredibly difficult for most. We'll be back in a moment to discuss a myriad of things. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back to our third and final segment. A special guest today, Mr. Blake Freeman, who has done so many things we could put his career to this point in a number of hours. Blake, you mentioned writing a script, and there is always that argument as to what is more difficult or should the creative process be similar. Matt Damon, Ben Affleck at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts uh, during a program said they can't write dialogue. How do you approach writing dialogue, particularly for wild creatures of the woods and forest? You know, it's um, that's interesting that you, you asked that. So I, for some reason, have been known that um, as a writer, and I, I, I get tapped to try to help fix a couple of, uh, or a few scripts here in town now and again when, when they're during filming, I'll come in and rewrite dialogue. I'm a dialogue-heavy guy, um, and that's kind of what I'm known for, is dialogue, to be real, um, relatable. And so I, I think that's lucky. Again, maybe it's because growing up, you know, I told you I moved so much. Um, I just, you know, I was alone until you make friends, which I learned how to make friends a lot. Um, you know, I talk to anybody and a brick wall, and sometimes both at the same time. <laughs> but I, I literally have been able to, and you know, I, I, I daydreamed a lot. I was the Walter Mitty kind of guy, so you know, I, I had full-on conversations in my head when I was daydreaming about everything. So whatever it is. Now, putting that stuff onto paper was easy for me. And it was just, I see the scenes, they play out in my head as it goes on, and I don't really know what either person is going to say until their response. Or, you know, I just see an expression on their face and somebody may not like that. It's really weird. and not quite sure how anybody else does it. But when you're, let's say you're writing a book, like, like, like I've done with Haibu, and it's you know, the book is for five to ten-year-old children, or eight or nine, I've got to now turn that into a script. Well, you've got to be able to, and this is the tough part to say, because a lot of people are like, you got to stick with the story, you've got to, you know, not this story, but any story, and, you know, stand by what they want to, you know, the story you want to tell. Well, there are certain things in Hollywood, and unfortunately this world runs on commerce. And if you don't make certain things commercially viable, which is, is a problem with a lot of film students or people who write books that are not for the masses and they're like, I just want this one story to be told. If I have any suggestions, make a story or something first, if you have a couple, do something first that you can somehow make money from, something that's more commercially viable. Some people call that selling out. It's not. You got, you got you got one time on this earth. Make the best of it. So if you want to make multiple things, make a commercially viable project. Make some money off of it. Get some sort of clout behind you so that you can get it. And then you make your passion projects after that. By doing Haibu, I had to manipulate Haibu just a little bit in the film. So now she's smarter and older acting in the film because the film has to now be for a broader audience. Does that make sense? It's no longer just for the children. 
Peppa Pig is making. Yeah, Peppa Pig is making 1.7 billion dollars a year as a children's franchise. Now, Peppa Pig doesn't have any feature films in the marketplace because it's just for three to six and seven year old children. Um, not a lot of people are probably going to show up for that film. Now, with Hi Boo, it's such an important message. We want it to be for all age groups and the masses. The book, even though the book skews younger, I need the film to skew for everyone. They have to. It has to be like a Shrek, and you know. Or I tell you what, I'm not saying I've got the next Forrest Gump, but Forrest Gump was a great movie that made you laugh and cry, and it had adventure and excitement, and it was amazing from start to finish. It just took you on a big arc of feelings and emotional feelings. I have to somehow take this children's book and do that in a feature film. If not, it will not be successful. So that's that's the struggle of what I'm going through by taking this one children's story and then making her more relatable um, in, in the dialogue. And the dialogue is the most important part of it because it must be relatable. It must intrigue you. It must make you laugh and cry and everything else. And so it's very, very heavy. Um, but that's, those are the differences there. And I threw in a little bit of... Uh, my two cents on what people should try to aim for. <laughs> Make something commercially viable first. Try it. You are saying then to perhaps just clarify to a, a finite point, Blake, you owe the reader, in this case children, that basic truth that the characters are as they and their own imaginations would perceive them to be. Yes. Yes. To get really finite, the answer is... <laughs> <laughs> Model exchange in the use of that word. <laughs> well, listen, I, I, again, I, I, the, the, what we were first talking about was, you know, how can you do the dialogue, and especially for the animals? It's, again, you have to, uh, you know, like we, what we talked about earlier, you... I, I have to keep the animals animals in that world, but when you're doing a film, the film from the book, the book is less descriptive, and, and I mean, the, the film is less descriptive and really dialogue heavy. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's a tougher, it's a tough transition, but it's, to me, I'm a dialogue guy, so it's easier for me. The book was a little harder describing the world, and there's a lot for me to learn, by the way, because I've never written a book before. Um, and so the editors were just having a time in their life with me. Uh, sometimes I was over-descriptive, and I was explaining everything. And then, by the way, when I was writing my script, I was over-descriptive on my script, trying to set up you know, camera shots and everything else. I had to have somebody rip that apart in the first movie that I wrote, too. <laughs> so there's lots of laws and rules, by the way, in this stuff. I don't know who's writing them, but I did everything wrong the first time. Everything wrong that ultimately seems to have turned out to everything right. It's an interesting, interesting dichotomy. How did you present haiku to uh, sample audiences? You mentioned that there had been a positive result. Yeah, so we tested haiku in multiple uh, schools for teachers that we knew. Um, and one of the things that we're doing as well as we set up an education program called the haiku portal, which is like a curriculum for kids. So in, in order to find out if that was going to work 
to benefit wildlife conservation and you know something that we could spread out. We first had to make sure that kids liked Haibu herself. You know, do they like the way she looks? Do they like the story? Do they like uh, you know anything about her? Do they understand what the overall mission is? Do they get it out of the story? And so, in order to do that, we tested it, and I did it in multiple states with with teachers that I knew, uh, multiple other groups. Um, you know, whether whether it be uh, vacation uh, uh, groups, uh, you know, study groups, just groups of kids. Like we had it, we just got a lot of feedback from all different kinds of, of groups of kids, and it was it was always positive. But they got the overall mission, which is they wanted to know more about what's going on with the animals around them. Are there circuses that are doing this, still doing it? They never really realized that to get these animals to do these tricks, these animals are whipped several times, and you know. And stoked with fear, and when we think about it, that's horrible, <laughs> you know. And I didn't think about it when I was young. I was at the circus eating popcorn and you know clapping and laughing. But it, if you really think about what we were doing in those worlds, it, it, it's terrible. So once we figured out that we were getting that feedback, kids did understand. We knew that Haibu was was accepted, and we can move forward. Was there a rational? discussion or just an instant reason as to why Haibu is a young girl. We live in that age where gender is such a sensitive issue. Um, no, it, it, it just was because that's how I saw it. Um, you know, when this happened, this when I created her and we started write, I started writing her and we started developing her out, all of this was about three months right before the Me Too movement. So here we are creating a story for boys and girls, but the, girl, but the character is a 10-year-old character that is a female empowerment story and at the same time is you know, wanting to save these wild animals from atrocities and at the same time, the Me Too movement starts, uh, you know, Ellen comes out about the elephants, and, uh, you know, people started paying attention to the wildlife. We actually just came along at the perfect time. It was the perfect storm, and it wasn't manufactured that way. We just got lucky. And, you know, it's, it's the right time, it's the right message, and it was the right product. And, you know, people like the name. Hi, Boo is a cute name. Hi, Boo. Um, and then, you know, she is, is, is well accepted. Her, her appearance is worldly. Everyone can kind of relate to her. Um, and that's, you know, we just, we just got really, really lucky on timing, uh, other things that are happening. And, you know, we, because of that, we're getting a lot of support from a lot of different entities, celebrities, uh, you know, conservation groups from, you know, African coalition, you know, obviously our partners, Wild Aid, um, you know, they're a profit participation partner. Every time a book is sold or anybody buys a movie ticket in the future, the money, some money will go to Wild Aid to help do this, you know. And so it's an exciting time, but it was, it was really the luck of the draw, perfect storm kind of thing. Did you intend initially to create activism amongst your young audience? You know, we did... We did once, once we started creating her, you know, that's, we started developing it out. We, 
we felt that this could be a real initiative. You know, she's not just Haibu. She's not just a, a story. I mean, Haibu is an initiative. Um, and, you know, we were doing hashtag I am Haibu, which is something that we just started launching, uh, which means I am going to recognize and do all I can for the fight for animal conservation. So there, this is, you know, this is an initiative. Uh, I mean, look, we, we're, we're a company just like any other IP that you buy, stuffed animals, toys, and that, ours just actually happens to have a positive message and a meaning, and, you know, a portion of those proceeds go to fight um, to make that happen. So it's, it's, uh, it's an exciting time. And, you know, we're, we're super proud of what we've been able to do with this. Will Haibu ever follow the trail of other characters, Barry's Wendy and Peter Pan? Will she grow up? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think she's going to stay right where she is so that generations to come can, can in, enjoy Haibu. Um, I mean, I say that now. I mean, who knows? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want her to grow up. And again, it's in my mind, too. So maybe it's because I haven't grown up. <laughs> that's, a, that's another show, by the way. That's another show. I might have to be in, I might have to be in, uh, in studio crying and holding, you know, we have to hug or something. But it's, no, I'm just kidding. It's, I don't think that I will have her grow up. I think we're just going to keep doing, you know, more more stories, um, you know, in this world. So I think I, I would love to have her be able to associate with everyone. Um, you know, we were doing the, the comic book series with uh, Power Entertainment, which is Stan Lee's company, um, and uh, bless his soul, just recently. But uh, Hi Boo is kind of transcending a lot, across a lot of age groups, especially in Asia. So there's the comic book. She's a little bit, she's a little bit tougher girl. She fights the, the uh, poachers and things like that. But those comic series raise awareness in those countries like Vietnam for the pangolin population, which is being decimated. And what it does is these comic series and that are that are that are released in paperback are just awesome adventure stories. But at the same time, raising awareness for what's going on there. So Haibu is a, is a vehicle in which to get just one of the most, two of the most very important positive messages out there. One, a little bit of female empowerment and the animal conservation thing. Those two things are so important right now for kids, and we need to, um, you know, we, we really need to get them across a lot of age groups, and it looks like we're doing that. We're doing it right so far. We're at that point where we usually talk about personal plans for the future, you've investigated so many means of transmitting your thoughts, your presentations, the pictures, the characters. Are there venues you have not experimented with yet, Blake, but would like to? Uh, yeah, so video gaming, obviously, is the next step that, you know, we have partners that are in Haibu who are executives at you know, some of the largest video game companies, but we have not yet transcended her world into a game, which we are doing um, very soon. That, that is one of them. I, I think, we, you know, this keeps coming up um, through agents and, and, 
and other uh, representations, which is making a live show um, of Haibu, you know, a, a Broadway-esque show. I wouldn't say that we're ready to go on Broadway yet, but, you know, who knows? Maybe one day we'll get lucky there. But something like that, I feel, would be awesome. I, I, I like the event and the ability to, to, for a family to go together and see something like this. You know, that people, so many people are embracing the book right now. I would love for them to be able to go and together on a, you know, a Saturday, every Saturday, different groups of families are able to go. And it's not just a movie that you have to wait, you know, 36 months or to 48 months every time for another one to come out because it takes so long to do animation. So I, I think those two venues are, you know, those are two things, I'm, areas I'd love to, uh, you know, that I'm excited that we're, we're going to try to explore. So. In the one minute, 20 some odd seconds we have, Blake, can you instruct the listening audience as to how they might become involved in either the project or the purchase of the book? Yeah, sure. So the book is called Hi Boo, Lost in New York, and you can get it on Amazon. Uh, just type in Hi Boo, Lost in New York on Amazon. You can follow me at facebook.com slash Blake Freeman. Just my name, B-L-A-K-E-F-R-E-E-M-A-N, facebook.com slash Blake Freeman. And uh, let me know what you think. I will converse, show you anything that you want to know, ask me questions, what have you. Um, keep your eye out, and then that uh, you can learn more about the entire project and our partner uh, partners at Wild Aid at www.haibu.love, L-O-V-E. So it's haibu.love. Much more we could follow through on, and perhaps we can do it another occasion, another time. Our guest has been Blake Freeman, an author of a remarkable book, a book that I've shared with young people, and they, frankly, universally adore it. Thank you, Blake, for being on Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Come listen to us again. <laughs>